cultural and artistic gathering spot in historic downtown Faribault. The Paradise is committed to offering high-quality visual and performing art opportunities for Faribault and our region. Regular events spotlight some of the best artists and musicians in our area and throughout Minnesota and the Upper Midwest. Our beautifully restored facility includes art galleries, classrooms, clay and textile labs, a gift shop and rehearsal spaces, in addition to a 300-seat auditorium. Visit ParadiseCenterForTheArts.org for a full schedule of events or call our box office at 507-332-7372. Connect and experience art at the Northfield Arts Guild. Visit our galleries, arts festival, and take in a performance at our theater featuring a full season of dramas, comedies, and musicals. The Guild's gift shop showcases unique art from over 100 local and regional member artists. Come enjoy music from the Cannon Valley Regional Orchestra or the 411 Concert Series. We invite you to explore your creativity in one of our classes. All are welcome at the Northfield Arts Guild. To learn how you can be a part, visit northfieldartsguild.org or call 507-645-8877. Art Zany, radio for the imagination, with your host Paula Granquist, is brought to you by the Northfield Arts Guild and by the Paradise Center for the Arts. And now, Art Zany, radio for the imagination. Good morning, this is Paula Granquist, and you are tuned to Art Zany, radio for the imagination. Thank you so much for being with us here today as we celebrate all things uh, creating and stories on this glorious summer morning. I am ready to tune my imagination, and I'm delighted that you're here with me. This morning I was thinking about, or actually when I was writing this the other day, one of my kids' favorite toys, and it was the glockenspiel. Many of you might have had one of these. It's a toy instrument, this one that they had made of graduated chromatic notes with multicolored metal bars on a wooden frame, and it's played with small mallets. It was so easy to make a song. And just as easy to make some racket. <laughs> it didn't matter because it was delightful to mess around with the simple scale of sounds, learning what happened when you tapped or maybe pounded the bar or moved your mallets across the keys to play a glissando or trying out different orders to play the notes. You could make music for a long time. And I'd love to think about the ways that we played with music when we were kids. It might have been as simple as pots and pans with a wooden spoon, a piece of grass played like a whistle in your hand, mouth sounds and singing. Maybe you made a paper towel uh, tube recorder. Maybe you um, just tapped your hands on the table, played with the Jingle Bell Christmas decorations, Maybe you were lucky to have one of those egg-shaped maracas. Maybe Grandma had an organ in the basement. There's a time when a young one, when everything is an instrument and music is everywhere. And I love, love that time. What I loved was that we were doing something to make music. It was active time with sounds, and it was discovering the notes and combinations that made us happy. It was also a time that I did some, what I called, in quotes, audience training, where I brought the kids. They were really little, but I tried to find places to go where we could listen to others make music. They were maybe concerts that were friendly to little ones. They were outdoors, so if they got the wiggles, they could move around, or maybe very short shows, maybe something targeted to kids, like um, a you know an instrument zoo, um, 
sometimes even classical performances or bluegrass or rock and roll and everything in between because I wanted to teach them the joy of music and the benefits of music for the mind and how many different sounds there are in the world. And I, I love those moments, and I've carried that through throughout the years. I continue to go to concerts and love being in the presence of live music. My kids don't, now that they're teenagers, they don't always want to go to concerts with me anymore or hang out. We certainly don't hang out in that playroom floor making sounds and music. But I like to believe that they, too, will carry that love of making and enjoying music with them for a long time. Music is the companion we all need. And there is a great opportunity, a great listening time, and great way to add music to your life this July and part of August in Northfield. Because if it's July, then it's time to celebrate the splendor of the church organs and the talented musicians performing in the Northfield Noontime Organ Recitals. So I'm delighted today to welcome into the studio, to join me on Arts Any Radio, Stephen May and... Aaron Looney. Welcome to Arts Any Radio. Thank you, Paula. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you both. You are both a part of the Northfield Noontime Organ Recitals. This is the 16th season, and it starts on July 12th. It's the first concert. That's on Wednesday. All concerts are 1215 to 1245. Just a nice break in the day for you to get away and step into the world of some music that will delight. And so we'll talk a little bit more about the concerts as we go through the day. But I thought maybe you could just introduce yourselves to our listeners and tell us a little bit about your organ uh, playing and the music in your world. Let's start with you, Stephen. Um, I retired actually a few years ago. I still have an instrument at home, so I keep practicing, keep things in shape. And I've uh, tends to focus more on the 19th century French romantic repertoire. Um, so it's very demanding, but also, to me, very rewarding. And since I don't have to play services anymore, I can focus on that instead of all the things that I've got to play for all these other people and other occasions. So it's a lot of fun for me. What was your interest in that particular period, and, and why was that? That was such a... Uh um, you mentioned it was challenging. So was that something about the organs that they had in France? It the is composers? challenging, it, it's, but it's more the, um, I guess, the atmosphere of a particular uh, period of uh, history um, and uh, the country that goes with it. Uh, so that the 19th century French, the literature, the um, food, that stuff has long sort of appealed to me more so than, say, the Baroque versions of it. I'm familiar with them. I just tend not to gravitate toward them. Mm-hmm. So. That is one of the joys of retirement, right? You get mm-hmm. to pick your, what, how you spend your time, and you probably end up busier than you were before you retired. More focused. Yeah, that's a great thing. Well, I'm delighted you're, you're back because you've been here before to tell us a little more about the Northfield Noontime Organs and it, organ recitals, and it's just a thrill. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And also joining us, this will be your first visit to Arts Any Radio. Aaron Looney is here. Tell us a little bit about your organ playing and your musical world. Well, conversely, I'm kind of at the beginning of my musical journey with the organ. I started when I was 14 after several years of playing piano. And um, unlike Stephen, I'm kind of still exploring a wide variety of different time periods and styles. And I also tend to gravitate a little bit more towards French music, particularly the French Romantic. Um, I think it's um, very fiery and uh, vibrant. It's full of a lot of emotion, which I really enjoy. Um 
I also work church music, so I have to keep up with that throughout the week and make sure that's ready for a Sunday morning. But otherwise, I practice a lot in my practice room alone and get to work on a variety of different things. And you're at St. Olaf right now. I am. I'm going to be a senior this year. So, and your major is organ? Organ music, church music, yep. That is, I think that's so wonderful that that major is available. Tell me about that transition from piano to organ, because there are a lot of people that, that learn to play the piano, but then how do you move from the side you want to focus on the organ? Oh, boy. Um, well, I can remember even as a um, young child, my affinity was always for the organ, not the piano, but... Um, being young, you're not very tall and it's very difficult to reach the organ pedals. And so, nobody has an organ And no one at has home. an organ at home. You have to go to church. <laughs> and when you can't drive, that's a little more difficult to have someone take you. Um, so, I mean, there, there are many similarities. Obviously, you have a keyboard and it's all laid out roughly the same. But you have also a variety of different things to add to that to make it a little more complicated. And the variety of sounds you want to combine called stops that you want to make colors or... Um, just even adding the pedal board and that new technique. So it's a bit of a transition and trying to figure out that coordination, the mindset. But um, I think it's very rewarding in that it's it's a, like a puzzle every time you sit down. Yeah, and that's something that uh, when you mentioned that, I hadn't thought about that, that you re- can't really learn to play the organ until your feet can actually reach the pedal. You can play the piano without the pedals. And it, you know, and obviously it adds something when you are able to, but the organ is really difficult without that. A little bit, yeah. And so that's that's the part of what's the joy of watching an organist, is the you know, it, it's like a, a foot dance in some ways, right? I mean, it's a very, um, very enchanting uh, part of the performance, and so it's always fun when you can watch, get a seat where you can mm-hmm. see that part as well, or sometimes. Uh, some of the things you can find out on the internet, you know, they have lots of different camera angles, so you'll get lots of different views of the organist playing. And uh, do you remember um, any of your first performances that when you were playing the organ? Would it have been at church for both of you, or uh, were you giving concerts early on? I remember my very first public performance outside of church. I actually started um, being more or less pushed into playing for a church service by my youth um, director, who was also the music director <laughs> of the church. So I was kind of shoved into that position, which very grateful for now. Um, my first public performance, though, was actually in a church, um, a different church, but it was a one of the Little Bach Preludes and Fugues. Mm. And um, I can remember it was a complete disaster. Um, I was very nervous. It was a new instrument, and it was just – there was a lot to think about and a lot of people there. So um, – that kind of stuck with me, but it's been a growth point ever since then. So yeah, I was going to say because that that actually is a good story because obviously that didn't deter you. You uh, recovered, and that happens to a lot of people when they have their first performances. Uh, the nerves really do mm-hmm. um, get to you. And what do you think was your ability to recover from that, or how, what helped you to say, "Okay, I'm going to try again," or go to practice, show up the next day? I had a very encouraging teacher. He was someone who was not actually formally uh, trained in classical music in his um, upper education. He was um, a software engineer who just dabbled in the organ and was actually rather good. Um, So that's who I started with. And he was very encouraging in the fact that he understood that because it wasn't something he was trained in. So he was constantly experimenting and having to evolve and try things. And that's something he really pushed me to do. And not, not everything can be perfect. You're going to make mistakes and that's how you learn. So 
um, getting up and trying again the next day or moving on to something else is very valuable in growing as a musician and a person. So you were very lucky to have a teacher was, like yeah. that. That's a really great experience. And, you know, it's those little moments that then mm-hmm. change, change what happens You change your trajectory a little bit. And so we're thrilled that, that that worked out and we get, we all get to hear you in the um, Northfield noontime organ recitals. How about for you, Stephen? When, when, when were you first on the organ in a performance? Back in high school, my uh, piano at home was not very good, but the piano at the church was much better. So on Sunday evenings, my parents would drive my siblings in for various church activities. I would go to the sanctuary and practice. And then the (laughs) organist moved. Uh, So they dragooned me into playing for the services on the organ, and I thought, well, I'd better learn more about this thing. How um, old were you? I was 17. Mm. So I had been playing church services since I was 17. <clears throat> um, when I got to graduate school, I realized that uh, with my wife also as an academic, finding two academic positions in the same place is going to be somewhat difficult. So I decided to keep an organ minor in addition to my composition major. And that's the way it has worked out. I've played mostly uh, as a church musician for the rest of my life. And uh, just kept going with things from there. But in graduate school, I was allowed to explore uh, a repertoire. My teacher was very indulgent because he couldn't play some of the stuff that I was trying to look at. Uh, But he didn't insist that I play other things the way that he did it. He gave me the free reign to explore from my compositional background, uh, which gives a different perspective on playing the piece. Um, so I do things a little differently. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? So composition is is how, you know, the music structures and the... The writing the piece of music that someone's going to play. Right. And so then because you had that lens, what was it you would see in the pieces that, you know, someone who maybe didn't... Um, or didn't come grow up through that, that uh, piece? The easiest one to point out is... Look at all the things that are written on the page, from the name of the composer, any dedicatee, the title of the piece, the title of the movements, the order of the movements, the key the piece is in, the time signatures that the piece is in, the notes on the page, the dynamics, how loud or soft it gets. All of those things, they assume that the composer got right. It's only the tempo that they almost always assume is wrong, and it's generally about two-thirds, three-quarters speed. Um, so that uh, the piece, the, the links that I sent you today for some of the pieces on the program, I intentionally did not send anything that I'm playing. I'm playing uh, one franc piece, the Grand Pia Symphonique or Grand Symphonic piece. Uh, most organists take nearly half an hour to play that. I play it another 20 minutes because I follow Franck's metronome markings. So there's a huge difference, and that's one of the things that my graduate organ teacher um, got used to, that I had very unusual ways. I wasn't going to listen to what someone else played and try to duplicate that. I was going to start from scratch. So you were going to build it again, essentially. it, It forces me to develop my technique into what was required instead of what I can already do. So it's like looking at it as a recipe, almost. Mm -hmm. It's performance instructions, just like mm -hmm. a play. It's not the finished product. And that is really interesting. I I like the way you phrased that and told us. And the performer, in my mind, is responsible for trying to get across as best, as honestly as possible, what the composer was actually trying to say and not what someone else said. 
And that's a challenge if you don't know that. And that's where a good teacher can mm-hmm. come in. And that's, that's really interesting. I, I, I'm curious about learning organ music because as an audience member, you know, we see there's a lot going on. And so I'm familiar with, you know, orchestral pieces or, you know, uh, music that you get, but usually just have your part mm-hmm. there. But when you get organ music, are there like 17 different lines for all the different sounds? Are there instructions of how to set up the organ at the, the top of it? I've actually never looked at that. So uh, who wants to share a little bit about that with me about when you first get a piece? What are you looking at? Um, I I actually like the idea. It's very much like a recipe in a lot of ways. Um, a lot of organ music is in three staves. So you have your manuals, your treble and bass clef for your hands, and then right. you have a separate stave underneath that for the pedal part, usually. Um, and then up at the top, very often you'll find a list for each keyboard and pedal of what is suggested for sound combinations or your stop registrations. Um, and that's usually what you would typically start to base it off of. Um, there's obviously various circumstances where you want to take it and, um, you know, dabble as you would even in a recipe, just spruce mm-hmm. it up or take things out, change things as you like. But um, typically that's where you would start. And then you, of course, look at your metronome markings and uh, such what is that to kind of base it off and get started. And so it's like you get you get set right mm-hmm. when you especially when you do those settings, and and each of the keyboards has a different. Tell me what that is again. A different um, uh, sound, right? Sure. There's actually a variety of different sounds. So each manual, each keyboard um, has different sections within the organ or chambers that have a variety of different colors and stops and sounds that you would then pull out the stops and that would create your combinations. Stephen may be able to explain this better than I am. No, I'm, I'm fascinated by it because it's, it's daunting, right? To think yeah, about. Yes, yeah, <laughs> quite a bit to think about. Um, especially when organ builders have gone to pains to create so much variety in the stops. Um, so the, one of the challenges of an organist is sitting down and recognizing, okay, this stop falls in the flute category. This is a string category. That's a principal category. It may be called a melodia. It may be called a dultia. It may be called almost anything you can think of. But you have to learn what category it falls in. So th- this score may call for a flute. I've got to use the melodia. And then you have to make adjustments to make it sound as if you imagine it's so, so intended. Yeah, okay, you're looking for this kind of ensemble or this kind of solo or whatever, uh, and you try to work from that. That's that's a lot. It's like your own orchestra. <laughs> well, Frank did refer to his instrument as his little orchestra. Uh, that makes perfect sense mm-hmm. because you really are bringing together all of those um, tones and sounds and, you know, s- different uh, places on the scale. And it really, it just, that's what's great about organ music. And one of the pieces that Aaron is playing is um, the finale of the uh, Vidor Eighth Symphony. At least he's talked about that. And what Vidor was trying to do uh, with the changes in the uh, French romantic instrument at that time, mid-19th century, was to imitate the flexibility and range of colors of an orchestra. Um, so uh, prior to that, most of the time they would set up something in the beginning and it wouldn't change until the end of the piece. He was looking for going between the brass section, the woodwinds, the strings, putting them all together, a, a much more flexible kind of sound with something like that. 
Franck was working with something uh, slightly different. Franck came from a virtuoso piano background. His father trained him to follow in the step footsteps of Franz Liszt. Mm. Um, so very uh, developed piano technique, uh, very dazzling for the concert hall. Not much use for the church, but very dazzling for the concert hall. Um, when the French started adding a German-style pedal board in the mid-19th century, Franck actually bought an attachment for his piano at home so he could try to bring his pedal technique up to the level of his manual technique. And the piece that I am playing is one of the six pieces from 1863 in which I am convinced what he was trying to do was figure out how to adapt his virtuoso piano technique to the organ. And that means some very challenging pedal parts, mm -hmm. um, some things that are better suited on the manuals that are better suited to a piano than to the organ. But he, uh, by the time of the later pieces, he figured out what, what worked better and what didn't. Uh, so it, they're exploratory, but they're coming from that virtuoso piano background. And so the uh, let's talk about those pedals because we haven't talked about those yet. Would you say that's like another keyboard? It is. Yeah. So it does have different. It's a keyboard for the feet instead of a keyboard for the hands. Pedal right. versus manual. And that I remember a, a show a few years ago. I learned about the um, shoes you buy for mm -hmm. playing the organ, which is kind of a something not everybody thinks about, right? Just like every sports player has the sh you know, shoes for different conditions, you will have um, specific... What makes an organ shoe work? They have to have leather heels and soles so that you can slide along the pedals. Um, sometimes they get a little bit too big on the end and I have to buy a special size to accommodate for that. You don't wear them anywhere else because if you start tracking in um, grit from the floors around you, you start grinding the pedals down like sandpaper. And so it's like a ballerina, right? You yeah. have to have the the right, um, you know, your points for for performance and being in mm -hmm. the studio. But you don't do that anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And you have to replace them frequently. A few years, okay. five, four or five years. So they do. They last. Uh, yeah, and it's. I mean, essentially, as you mentioned to me, it's a all you need are you know the music and those shoes, and you've got yourself. Uh, well, besides a lot of time to yeah. learn and practice and and that's another thing too right with the organ it's not like you can bring that home and and practice uh at, at you know your leisure you have to be at a place that's open that you have access to with an organ and one of the challenges of being an organ student in centuries past uh organists frequently had a practice instrument at home it was not an organ uh box day it was a pedal harpsichord mm. uh in Franck's day it was a pedal piano um, and there are different versions of those. Sometimes it was simply uh, a device that would uh, pull down the hammers for the uh, piano. And sometimes it was a separate keyboard altogether, set of, set of strings and everything. Uh, but they would have instrument, uh, instruments that they could practice on at home or a pedal clavichord sometimes, which is a much quieter instrument. Um, but today people don't get things like that because they're usually more expensive than a regular <laughs> piano. Uh, so they wind up just driving into the church where they've got access to it. And, and what kind of rehearsal spaces do you have in, because not everyone can obviously use Bow Chapel to, to practice, so what kind of options do you have on campus? Certainly. Well, we have limited access to Bow Chapel. I won't say we have none. Um, so we get Bow every once in a while. We actually have another instrument that's more suited to the Baroque period and early music in what we call Studio A. It's yes. a mechanical action organ. Um, beautiful instrument. And then we additionally have seven practice rooms with very small um, very small organs that are suitable to practice on very quiet stops. So you hear 
just about everything that you do wrong, which is <laughs> both a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways. Um, but yes, we have access to those just about any time we want, which is very nice in comparison to competing with other voice majors or instrumental majors for a practice room that anybody can use. So mm-hmm. that's I think that's great. And how many uh, uh, majors are there in the organ in, in your class? You'll be a senior, you mentioned. Yes. In my class, there are three of us right now. Um, mm-hmm. Total, we have about eight or nine majors and then various secondaries who also take lessons. Um, all brilliant musicians in their own right. Um, some more suitable to organ, others in various other fields. We have many who are composers and vocalists and wonderful pianists. So just a variety of wonderful talent. Yeah, there's music. You say music and, and St. Olaf, they go together, right? Yes. <laughs> and that is, that is one of the great things. And folks, if you're just tuning in, this is Art Zany Radio for the Imagination. I'm here talking about the Northfield Noontime Organ Recitals with organists Stephen May and Aaron Looney. And we are just uh, ready to launch this new series. It's the 16th. Uh, in the you know season of this, and I want to thank Richard Coleman, who has been the curator, the uh, organizer. Yes, of everything uh, related to this, uh, he's always uh, traveling at this time, and so it, I'm delighted that he connected me with both of you, so we could promote this. The first concert is on July 12th. That's with Richard. He is at St. Peter's Lutheran Church, and that is at. 418 Sumner Street East in Northfield. And uh, you were telling me a little bit earlier, Stephen, about the organ that he's going to be playing. And uh, tell us a little bit, because that's maybe slightly different than some of the other ones. All of the other instruments on the series are actually uh, pipe organs. They have pipes that have wind blowing through them in order to produce sounds. The instrument at St. Peter's was replaced a few years back with an electronic instrument on the recommendation of uh, John Ferguson. This instrument uses uh, electronic samples of the pipe organ sounds that are still combined in the same way. So that here's this tab that says flute, and there's a flute sound on there. But it's not just something completely electronically generated. It's actually sampled from a, a, a flute pipe. Um, and it's an electronic instrument which has certain advantages um, with an electronic instrument like that the keyboard pressure is going to be the same all the way up and down the keyboard some of the instruments like the united methodist church are what's called a mechanical action so there is a direct mecha- or tracker action there's a du- direct mechanical link to uh, the key and the pipe work underneath that and the further down on the keyboard you go the lower or the more the larger sound you try to get, the more that pressure increases, mm. which is something that organists have to learn to deal with. One instrument that I played, uh, full organ, got as much as 22 ounces of pressure with the little finger of the left hand. Tell me what that would mean for your playing, because I, I, I'm normally to... it's about three and a half ounces. Okay, so like it's really sensitive. Uh, it's, it's extremely heavy. <laughs> it's a health risk. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the nature of the instrument. Uh, an electronic instrument, you're not going to have that problem. Oh. So that uh, really fascinating that that all of you are playing at different places. And he did bring in a sample. This is um, the piece that, that Richard will be playing on July 12th at St. Peter's Lutheran Church. It's the Westminster Carillon of Luis 
Louis yeah, Vierne. Vierne. And this is played at Notre Dame, mm-hmm. which is, you know, an amazing, if you have a chance to take a look at the video, it's well worth checking out because just that space alone, except I'm really sad because the organist is there by himself, right? <laughs> it, it, um, it, for, it, it feels like it should be just filled with people because it's such an amazing space. But let's, what should we be listening for as we um, just take a peek into this particular piece? Um, the piece uses a very well-known theme. It's from the Big Ben, Big ben Chimes in London. Um, so you'll recognize the main theme for what's going on. And he uses that theme uh, throughout the piece as a way of um, organizing everything else. So it, it starts kind of modestly, builds to a huge climax. I don't know how far into the piece you're going to go, but you'll definitely recognize the principal theme. Yeah, we probably won't play the whole piece because it's uh, quite a... Quite a long one, but we'll we'll uh, play enough that you get a sample. Um, and he, it looks like he has four keyboards here. I believe and, that's correct. And you mentioned the um, the pedals in this are different than uh, because of the they're at an angle. Um, starting in the nineteenth century, earlier twentieth century, they uh, prior to that the the pedals were flat and straight, just like the keys on a, the keyboard that you see for a piano. Um, that gets Awkward for the feet because uh, the, the further out you get to the ends, the, the greater the distance. Right. So they began trying to accommodate that so that they're now like a fan and they curve. They radiate up towards the ends so the distance from your knees is about the same for each pedal. So you don't have to be doing the splits to reach and those if, outer. <laughs> and if I recall correctly, Notre Dame is where Louis Vierne was organist. Oh, Wow. So he knew this instrument and knew how to compose for it. Mm-hmm. So let's take a listen to this, uh, a piece a piece of this. This is what Richard is playing. Of course, this is not exactly what you'll hear, but it's a, uh, the piece on this particular organ. And this again, and this, this one is performed by um, Olivier Latry. Mm-hmm. And so here we go.
All right, folks, we're going to um, let that play just for a little bit there. He, it is a beautiful piece. I encourage you to go and uh, check that out. It is, again, uh, Caroline de Westminster, Louis Vierne. And uh, this is what Richard Coleman will be playing. It's it's really wonderful. And that's part of the Northfield Noontime Organ Recitals. That'll be on July 12th. All concerts are on Wednesdays from 12.15 to 12.45. And uh, that is, I think, one of the... Um, wonderful things about it is it's like you can take your lunch break and go um, hear the music and it's a short concert right doesn't make your a a commitment for your day but it gives you that break and um, we've had really great turnouts for the Northfield noontime organ um, concerts and so uh, folks should know that 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 you know you might need to allow a little bit of time for parking or for walking into the venue so you don't miss the, the start of the concert uh tell us um then we have you are next Aaron, on on the concert series for the july 19th and you're going to be at bow memorial chapel oh yeah oh and see let me go got to get your mic up a little bit. Sorry, Sorry. about that. that was me. Uh, and so tell me what, what pieces or what piece you've prepared or what, how you're thinking about uh, this concert. Um, well, Stephen and I were actually just talking a few minutes ago about this and that I have a variety of rep that I've been narrowing down and I need to get that narrowed down. Otherwise, we're going to be sitting for an hour in a concert. Um, <laughs> uh, throughout the year, of course, I prepare a variety of things and lessons and whatnot to keep um, growing and building. And I have a variety of things. I almost certainly, I think will do the Bach Toccata Adagio and Fugue, uh, which is a more mature piece of his. It's, um, very virtuosic, very, um, different throughout actually in a lot of ways. It opens with this very free and, um, wild Toccata and then moves on to a very gentle Adagio that's very soft and gentle and kind of ebbs and flows throughout. Um, then ends with a very, almost demonic fugue it's um quite <laughs> quite a bear to play um but it's it's very um fiery in a lot of ways it has this very dance-like melodic rhythm to it while also kind of keeping you on the edge a little bit it's very edgy and um kind of like i said demonic in that way but um i also have as he mentioned the vidor which i'll probably end with which is a very romantic and emotional piece it kind of grows and ebbs throughout from very soft and quiet stops kind of showing off the wide variety of stops and sounds on the organ it's kind of fills the room in a lot of ways by the end um using up every aspect and possible combination of the stop list yeah and that's one thing you mentioned about the organ that i think makes it so intriguing is the ability to express that emotion and you know we heard some of that in in the piece that we played of you know the uh range of 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 ways and so i'm thinking about as a player um how do you play the piece the way the um composer intended and still you're feeling emotions as you're playing and you want to bring those through but you need to stick to the notes on the page so we say um that's just something that i would imagine is you can get carried away with your piece Mm -hmm. right in putting yourself in it how do you balance that i think a lot of it depends on for me the acoustic in the room and the instrument you're sitting at because each as we've mentioned each instrument is different you have different um designs of stops that sound 
vastly different between each instrument from your flutes to your principal strings, reeds, etc. Um, so sitting down, you have to kind of feel out the balance and how you want to register it and what it sounds like. And then on top of that, if you have a very live acoustic, you probably don't want to take it at a very swift tempo. Otherwise, it's going to sound like cacophony in the room. <laughs> um, so balancing those out while also maintaining the emotional aspect for me of the piece and kind of almost envisioning a scene to go with mm. it in a lot of different parts of the piece. Um, I have a piece I'm playing otherwise that I won't be playing on the recital that I, I kind of imagine a canoe rushing towards a waterfall. It starts in this gentle little stream that rushes on and on as it accelerates towards the end and grows in crescendo. Um, and then it tips off the edge at the waterfall. And it's just, it's this gradual growth. So it's it's very helpful for me to envision something in my mind mm-hmm. to kind of set the scene in a lot of ways and then work with the acoustic and the registration to kind of embody that throughout the instrument mm-hmm. how what is you as someone who wants to play it as it was originally intended how are you able to connect with that uh, emotion um there is a, a something that's very easily misunderstood in that the notations on the page are actually pretty vague there's no one there's no way you can actually know exactly what was going on unless if you want to listen to Olivier Messiaen play Olivier Messiaen then you've got a pretty good idea of how it's supposed to go <clears throat> if you're going to listen to somebody else you've got some questions there you can start by understanding the sort of ethos of a particular period uh, what this particular um, French audience would have been mm. expecting or what this particular in fact uh, I was thinking earlier when we were talking about the repertoire he's kind of covered the two major things there most organists tend to gravitate either towards the German Baroque or the French Romantic uh, with 18th century German or 19th century French and there's all sorts of other stuff and you'll find occasionally people that get into one of those but most of them fall into one of those two camps and I, I'm the latter camp the French Romantic but you can start from the idea that um, I, I tend to look at a lot of other pieces by the same composer. I don't look at just that one piece mm-hmm. by itself. <clears throat> so that uh, when I do Franck, I look at all the orchestral music, uh, the piano, the chamber music, and get an idea of how that is played. And the organ music usually is very different, like it's written by a completely different composer. And I try to imagine, okay... What if you took these um, ideas and simply transferred them to the organ? So that last year I played two movements of the of the violin sonata, um, the, and the idea is to simply this is how it works on the organ, what it sounds like on the organ. I am not making excuses for the organ because if it's it's an extremely complex instrument, mm-hmm. I have to figure out how I'm going to make the same ideas work. Uh, so approaching a piece that way, okay, this was Franck's general mindset or Bach's general mindset or whatever. Um, people will complain about the difficulties of the music. Uh, Bach would say, well, you've got ten fingers just like me, practice. <laughs> Beethoven would say, well, I write 30-second notes, so what? Um, the Brahms Violin Concerto was considered unplayable by the person for whom it was written. It's now standard repertoire. It's just a question of understanding what the challenge before you is. So when I approach a particular piece like that, I'm probably not going to listen to what anyone else has played mm-hmm. for that piece. I might listen to other instruments to get an idea of the sound of that kind of instrument, uh, you know, French Baroque versus French Romantic or French 20th century, whatever. But as far as a particular piece, I'm more likely to listen to uh, Frank's orchestral music rather than hear someone else play the organ music. 
Do you think history plays a role in your your practice ahead of time understanding of a piece? What was going on in, you know, the uh, greater world mm-hmm. or the particular uh, place that they were composing? Uh, not necessarily political aspects, but there are certain other cultural aspects, the way the uh, concert venues were evolving at that time. Mm. Um, so that the idea that Franck was trying to develop the, his piano, virtuoso piano technique to the organ, this was something that was becoming uh, relatively new at that time. Organ, French organ music up to, up to that time had very limited use for the pedals. Uh, it might be just a long held down note or something like that, or a very slow moving hymn tune, something like that. Uh, what they were trying to do, Franck, Fidor, other in the mid-19th century, was to look at something completely different that would compete with the orchestra or a chamber ensemble. Was that to draw audiences, or were the instruments new, the organs? Uh, the instruments were uh, going under, undergoing radical changes at that time. Um, the uh, prior to that, the pedals might be uh, 8 or 10, 12 pedals, 12 notes, and usually they were just... Uh, a, a string that would pull down from the key on the keyboard above it. Um, by the 19th century, they were looking at a German-style pedal board, which was um, essentially what we have now, and um, fully independent division, um, so that uh, the pedal part was much more prominent in the German Baroque, and it became much more prominent in the French Romantic. So understanding what they were trying to do in terms of... Um, Developing a concert repertoire, uh, to me, is important to uh, how I approach a particular piece. And I think that pedal example might be a good lead-in to the other uh, snippet that we're going to be uh, looking at. This is a piece that uh, Joanne Rodlin will be playing at the last concert of the series, which is August 9th, and that is um, with Donna Paulson on piano, an extra bonus for us there. She's delightful to listen to, so that's a reason to show up at the Northfield United Methodist Church. That's on Maple Street. And this particular piece is Prelude, Fugue, and Chacona. Hope I did that correctly, of Dietrich Buxtehude. My goodness, that was a tough one. <laughs> and uh, it begins with the organist, um, Cristiano Risotto, um, doing a lot of footwork mm-hmm. and that is something else if you d- get a chance to look it up um it is uh christine cristiano risotto r-i-z-z-o-t-t-o uh, you can look that up because it's really interesting and this was in a church in um, greenville north carolina the first presbyterian church and uh this is it's really an, another interesting instrument well and we'll talk maybe a little bit about that at the end, but let's take a listen to um, this performance to get another kind of organ music.
another great uh, piece of music for us to listen to. Again, uh, that was uh, Cristiano Risotto and the um, Prelude Fugue and Chacona of Dietrich Buxtehude. And that it's, it's really another uh, fascinating piece. I just really enjoyed uh, the pedal work on that because it opens up with just pedal. And don't, I don't often see that, but uh, the, pe- the pedal is, like you mentioned, um, become integral with, with the, the music uh, for these, these performances. And, you know, one, one of the things, you know, you can see each of these organs, and that is, a, I think, one of the challenges that you all face is every single organ is different, as you mentioned, and each performance place is different. And then we also sort of had never talked about the, you know, you have elements that are out of your control that affect the sound, the uh, humidity and temperature. And so there's a lot you are dealing with when you're getting ready for a performance. Uh, how often do you get to, to practice on the actual instrument you're going to be performing with? Or do you have to kind of transfer what you practice onto the instrument that you are going to play? It's a bit of both. A bit of both. Okay. Um, if you can recall the two instruments that you've just heard on these excerpts, the very big difference in the sounds between mm-hmm. them. The first piece was a big sort of orchestral sound. The second piece was more of a chamber kind of sound. One of the things that you have to take in mind is that not every organ is suited for playing any piece of music. Mm-hmm. Some are much better suited to playing the German Baroque like this. The, uh, the um, Louis Vierne piece, the Carillon, would be extremely difficult and not very convincing on the last instrument that you heard. Um, the very first, the last piece that you heard would be kind of muddy and overblown on the first instrument that you heard. So trying to figure out what is going to work on this instrument, not necessarily what I want to play, but what the instrument is capable of playing. You have just added another layer to this organ playing that just keeps getting more complicated. <laughs> That's you, our life. You have, there, there's a lot of, of things I would imagine just, you know, you're juggling mm-hmm. in, in any given performance. And that's what makes it such a great experience as an audience member to appreciate that and be aware of that. Um, we, you are playing, we should mention too, on July 26th is Noah Klein. He's going to be at Skinner Chapel on the Carleton College campus. And Noah was here several years ago um, as a young organist, and now he is continuing mm-hmm. his his uh, playing, which is very exciting to, do you know what, I don't know a lot about what Noah's up He's to. He's finishing up a degree, I believe a master's degree, at the Yale School of Sacred Music. That makes perfect sense, and <laughs> how lucky are we that he gets to, that we get to hear him play when he comes back, so wonderful. And then you're playing on August 2nd, mm-hmm. And that is at the First United Church of Christ. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the pieces you've selected. Um, there are two, um, both by Cesar Franck, and I put them back to back uh, in order to illustrate what I was talking about earlier with the development of the repertoire. The first, the uh, symphonic piece, Pièce Symphonique, was actually written for harmonium, which is kind of like a reed organ or pedal organ. Mm-hmm. And it has an extremely modest uh, pedal part, mostly long notes that could be played by the page turner. Uh, I'm literally, <laughs> they're, they're, it's that simple. Um, but it represents one kind of approach to writing for an instrument that looks almost the same. It represents the older style of French um, church music. Uh, it's, it's almost like it, you could put vocal parts with it, and it would be eminently singable with something like that. 
The other piece, the grand symphonic piece, uh, which was actually written at the same time, same year, is um, virtuoso piano technique. Mm. And it's impossible for a vocal ensemble to do. But it was written specifically for the organ and to show off some of the new capabilities of the modern organ of its, of its day. Mm. So uh, the pieces I intend to contrast with something like that. One is a very small piece. We were talking earlier about the large churches would have um, the large pipe organ that we think of in a gallery in the back with the organist by himself or maybe a few guests. Um, there would be in the front near the choir a smaller reed organ that would be a second organist would play. Uh, the gallery organ in the back was too far away to come to the choir just because of the time lag. Mm -hmm. um, so both of those instruments would have been heard in a large church just for different kinds of things. Um, so I decided to put these two pieces back to back to explore just what the differences were. They're um, interesting together. That would be a wonderful uh, afternoon, and I'm so excited. I'm curious um, how we can get more young people excited about the organ. What do you think? Do you find that that's happening? Um, it. I think it depends on the environment you're in in a lot of ways. Um, I don't think there's actually a lack of interest in the organ. I think mainly what the um, difference is in our time period is that a lot of young people are more accustomed to watching things on the computer and online. So it's less of an incentive to come out when you can just look at it on a screen. Um, and of course, with YouTube, we have a variety of different things we can watch at any point in time. Mm -hmm. um, I think, especially on St. Olaf campus, the organ is kind of revered in a lot of ways. And anytime there's a concert, many of the students will show up. Um, Pipe Screams, our annual organ Halloween concert, <laughs> is always packed with students. Um, it's become quite an event. I think... Um, in a lot of ways, if you wanted to get younger people more involved in the organ, tailoring things like that in a way that is fun, mm -hmm. that um, keeps them interested, in, but also curious, because there is a lot of curiosity about the organ within the younger generations. Um, the amount of times that organists at churches or in institutions have people come up and want to get a closer look at the instrument is almost never ending. You mm -hmm. have someone who wants to know, what are the pedal boards? What are these little buttons and tabs? What do they do? Um, so I, I don't think there's a lack of interest. I think it's trying to figure out a way that is intriguing and fun for people to, that incentivizes the come and be present with the instrument instead of seeing it on a screen where it's not quite the same. Not Live the music same. is yeah. exactly, which is what the Northfield noontime organ recitals are about. This is for everyone, every age. It is from 1215 to 1245, Wednesdays, beginning July 12th in Northfield. You can start off at St. Peter's Lutheran Church at, with Richard Coleman, and then you can pick up a copy of the schedule, and you'll have everything, or um, check out. There's, uh, I believe if you search online, you can get the full list of events. I've got that posted on kymnradio.net as well. Folks, this is Art Zany Radio for the Imagination. I am so excited about the these recitals. Thank you, Stephen May, and pleasure to meet you, Aaron Looney. I hope you will continue to come back to Northfield even after you graduate to play. Uh, you, you've been listening to the show that celebrates all things creating. I hope you always remember to add some art zany to your life. And, of course, in the meantime, until next time, enjoy your imagination. You've been listening to Art Zany, radio for the imagination, with your host, Paula Granquist. Art Zany is brought to you each week by the Northfield Arts Guild and by the Paradise Center for the Arts in Faribault.
95.1. The One.